Um, so we're yes, we're in Colossians. Hopefully you've um, hopefully you've still got that open. And um, yeah, through that song we've prayed for God's help as we come to His Word. So I won't um, repeat ourselves by praying again. Um, so last week someone asked me <coughs> the question, "What is God doing through COVID nineteen?" Um, it's a great question to be asking and thinking about. And my response um, was basically, "I don't know." <laughs> and uh, and in in many ways that should continue to always be our response as finite creatures um, who who whilst we seek the mind of Christ don't have the mind of the um, infinite God. Uh, And you can ask me more about that distinction if you want later. Jesus is God. Don't worry, I'm not denying that. But certainly having having um, knowledge that God has is not something available to us um, as we are. And so I don't know why COVID-19, but uh, part of the answer I gave last week is is thinking about, well, what's what can we respond with in the face of COVID-19? And it may well be that in part that is what God is wanting for his church. Um, and certainly the thing that we're seeing that we heard um, in our prayers earlier that I'm sure we're all aware of is just how much is being stripped away from humanity right now, um, from uh, from our sense of strength, from our sense of self-sufficiency, from our sense of autonomy and power and ability to um to propel ourselves into the future and so on and so forth all of that is being stripped away i don't know if anyone else has um read this book i've i've just started reading this homo deus um by yuval noah harari um his earlier book sapiens is um apparently widely read in schools as he gives his uh take on humanity and who we are as a species and as a race and this is his kind of his looking forward book, Homo Deus, you can sense in the title, A Brief History of Tomorrow is the subtitle. Um, and, and in it, basically, it seems what he's doing is, is saying, you know, as we stand at the, the start of the 21st century and look ahead, well, humanity is actually in a pretty, pretty great place. All of the things that used to be a threat to us, and he names um, three, I think, uh, famine, war and plague are no longer a threat to us um, as we open the 21st century. Here are a few money quotes. I said, I'm not very far into this, so I'm interested to see where it goes. But here are some um, from the first chapter. Many fear that is med- that this thing that he's about to say, medical advance, is only a temporary victory and that some unknown cousin of the Black Death is waiting just around the corner. No one can guarantee that plagues won't make a comeback, but there are good reasons to think that in the arms race between doctors and germs, doctors run faster. And then on the next page, um, so in the struggle against natural calamities such as AIDS and Ebola, the scales are tipping in humanity's favour. Um, so on and so forth. And then he says the era when humankind stood helpless before natural epidemics is probably over. Now, he does recognize, of course, that that's not an absolute guarantee, but he seems to have a pretty confident view of humanity. And he goes on in this this first chapter is really saying because of where we are, we can look ahead to greater horizons than things like plagues and epidemics that used to hold us back in the past. And he goes on to provide some interesting statistics. So, for instance, in. In Google, well, in Google 2000, sorry, Google 2015, in the year 2015, Google Ventures in, was investing nearly 40% of its multi-billion dollar portfolio in life science startup, startups, including several ambitious life-extending projects. The PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel um, has apparently recently confessed that he aims to live forever. And this is a quote. I think there are probably three main modes of approaching death. 
You can accept it, you can deny it, or you can fight it. I think our society is dominated by people who are into denial or acceptance, and I prefer to fight it. Um, so that was a quote from the PayPal founder. As I said, I don't know where he's he's going in this book, this guy, Yuval Noah Harari, but certainly this first chapter is is a pretty strong statement of human hubris. Well, you know, look how far we've come. All of those silly old superstitions like religion and myth and everything else can fade into the background. We are free to write our own tomorrow. And what a tomorrow it will be. Look how much potential there is in humanity. Look, we're even talking about extending life expectancy, perhaps even getting some kind of amortal life. That is, you know, at least defeating the normal things that take our lives and living for hundreds of years. Is that on our doorstep? Is that what we're about to step into? And certainly I think that the recent pandemic is showing us that we really are as fragile and frail as we have always been. Yes, medicine is astonishing. Yes, what the doctors are doing in the laboratories, um, as well as in the hospitals, is is mind-blowing. And of all the times to be alive when facing this kind of thing, you've got to say this has got to be the best one. And yet, look at how easily we have crumbled as a society, as people, this tiny sub-microscopic thing. As I understand viruses, looking at John Kennedy's faces and Fiona's, as I say, this they're, they're not even organisms or not quite organisms is that about right they're sort of yeah yeah ish anyway um let's let's don't look at him anymore in case i'm mildly embarrassed myself and he's now smirking at me but um uh viruses these this tiny little thing and yet it has brought humanity to its knees what is god doing in covid19 well i don't know but certainly we are being reminded of just how impotent and frail we are and in all of this, human projects are dissipating and disappearing. And who knows where this is going to end up and where we're going to be. And at times like this, we're asking ourselves, is the project I've committed myself to worth a commitment? Is it going to stand up? Is it going to see through this test and whatever else this world may throw at it? And as Christians, we want to say that the project we've committed ourselves to is none other than the project of Jesus Christ. We have said in him and in him alone, I'm going to stake my life, my hope, my future, my everything. And um, that is that is what we're going to be thinking about today. The fact that Jesus Christ alone is our hope. And it's that alone that I really want to focus on because we really are making this tiny slender claim that actually fills the whole universe that Jesus Christ alone is all we need. Ultimately, he alone is all that we need. This is true not just in the face of fragile human projects around us that have denied religion and said that Christianity is some ancient myth and fairy superstition, fairy tale superstition that can be done away with, but even inside the church, even people who claim the name of Christ, we can forget this aloneness. There's an illustration. I may have used it before, so I'm sorry if I have. Um, but um, I like it. It's a good one. And maybe you've forgotten it. In the early 20th century, maybe in the mid 20th century, um, uh, someone, um, an American uh, pastor asked his um, uh, congregation, what would this city look like if the devil took over? Um, uh, sorry, again, sorry if you've heard this before, but it's a good illustration. What would this city look like if the devil took over? And you probably expect he was expecting the answer, you know, be overrun with with brothels and casinos and there'd be crime everywhere. The city would be really dirty and run down. Um, there'd be broken families left, right and centre. It would be horrific. That's what it would look like if the devil took over the city. 
And the pastor said, that's what you're thinking. But actually, do you know what? I think it wouldn't look at all like that. The pastor said, if the devil took over this city, bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Crime would be non-existent. And the streets would be full of polite citizens who would smile and say hello. There'd be comprehensive provision for the poor. And on every street corner, there would be a church. And in those churches, every Sunday, there would be full congregations of people. And in those churches, every Sunday, Christ would not be preached. Loads of good things happen. Loads of commendable things happening. But the one unique thing that the church has, that the church must hold on to, that we need to hold on to as Christians, is Jesus Christ and his finished work for us. He and he alone is what we have to hold on to. And if you can do away with that, then everything else falls by the wayside, ultimately, even if there are many good and commendable things um, that might be going on. So at the end of the day, there's one question that matters to all of humankind, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, wherever we've been brought up. It might be worded in different ways, but this is the question that we are driven to. That is a necessary question. How can I be accepted by a holy God? It says at the end of Hebrews 9, it is appointed for a person to die once and then to face judgment. And the question we have to ask is, how will I see that judgment through? Or how will I be seen through that judgment? And the answer that we must give wholly, completely and utterly is Jesus Christ and nothing else. See, that, that pastor that I mentioned at the start, um, he knew that the devil wants us to forget the unique and sole importance of Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't everything, then we've got nothing. If Jesus isn't everything, then we've got nothing. Being with a holy God forever has only one basis, Jesus Christ. Anything added to him is going to be bad news. Now, as I said, um, this this sermon in a different form was part of a, a series I did um, uh, sort of celebrating the 500 years of the Reformation in 2017. And uh, in, in that series, the five um, solas I've already mentioned, uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, by faith alone, um, uh, sorry, sola gratia, by grace alone, faith alone, sola fide, solus Christus, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. And the medieval church at the time of the Reformation would would have said, well, we have very high regard for all five of those things. The Bible, faith, grace, Jesus and God's glory. And don't get me wrong, the medieval church did adore Christ and God's glory. And don't take what I'm saying to be undermining that fact. But the issue was that little word alone. You might have high regard for grace. But if someone adds their own effort to that grace, well, it's not alone. So, for instance, on the grace front in the medieval church, one of the, the most famous preachers of um, the, the late 15th century was a man called Gabriel Beale. And in one of his most famous sermons, he gave this illustration of a bird, a bird that is has a stone around its foot and is therefore kind of bound and at the bottom of the cage. And and what grace does is, is it comes, it doesn't necessarily release the stone, but it gives a super special strength to the bird's wings and the bird can can actually fly away. Yes, a high view for grace, but it's not grace alone because the bird still has to stretch its wings and flap. Faith might be good, 
But if it's not faith alone that receives God's verdict of righteousness, that that verdict that actually is nothing but the perfect life of Jesus lived as the true man, the true human being we never were, then it's not faith alone that is going to justify. And so it is with Christ. The medieval church, yes, the Roman Catholic Church today says beautiful things. There is much value to be had in reading theology written by our Roman Catholic friends when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, fully God and fully man, that his death is hugely important. But what the reformers certainly saw in the medieval period was that whilst Christ was highly significant, he wasn't sufficient. He was extraordinary, but he wasn't enough. And the reformers saw this in a few areas. Perhaps um, we we know from some parts of Roman Catholic theology today where where Jesus Christ is highly venerated, worshipped as God. Of course he is. But actually other things are added in. And one of the ways that you might see this is through through the veneration of Mary, sometimes called a, a co-redemptrix, one who redeems alongside Jesus or another mediator, perhaps a way of getting to speak to God. Um, because we just we can't approach Jesus. Perhaps the thought is there, but but sometimes she is spoken of in these highly elevated terms. And we want to say, well, actually, there's no special category of saint. Um, Mary was extremely blessed, but in no different category to the rest of us. A sinner who needed salvation, who received it just like we do. But we don't even need to just look at um, people in other branches of the church and say, well, they've got some error over there and and they really need to get right. Because all of us are prone. None of us are any better than that. We are all prone to add something to Jesus. So we think that our salvation depends on the strength of our faith, on how good we're feeling about Jesus at any given moment, rather than about how strong our Lord Jesus Christ is himself. Or perhaps we look at other Christians and we think, well, they've got a better prayer life than I do. Or they don't struggle with the same sins that I struggle with. Do you know what? They've they've got more right, actually, to enjoy God than I do because they're just better at those sorts of things. Or maybe we sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. And yet, actually, our lives reflect a very different set of priorities when we get up for work on Monday. In lots of different ways, Christ alone doesn't end up functioning like the slogan for our lives, whatever um, we end up saying. And in one sense, that's what we saw in the sermon series on James. We can say, yes, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And yet we can be saying something that perhaps we don't commit completely wholeheartedly to with the rest of our lives. I mentioned the name Martin Luther. uh, sort of when I was, uh, yes, uh, earlier on, um, he, he ni- uh, nailed those 95 theses to the castle door in, in Wittenberg. And one of the reasons why he was such a big figurehead, he, had a, he was a very sensitive man, Martin Luther. You read um, some of his works and he ta- has a lot of toilet humour, talks a lot about breaking wind at various points. He's very amusing to read. Um, but he, he was a very sensitive man, had quite a sensitive conscience. And, and that's actually very good because, you see, he experienced this terrible affliction of his soul. Um, the German word that uh, appears in his own writings and other writings is Anfrachtungen, um, this kind of existential angst that he had, the crushing agony he felt when he thought that his acceptance by God had something to do with what he did. Even if he was topping up something that Jesus had done, nevertheless, he realized if anything depends on me, if I'm contributing in any way, then 
actually Anfechtungen is going to be completely normal. Of course, that's going to be how we're going to feel. If we're having to look at ourselves and say, this is, this is why I'm going to be right with God, or this is how I'm going to en- enjoy God more, and I have more of a right to enjoy God because of myself, then we're going to be in despair. Luther's biblical remedy, and I stress the biblical remedy, was to stop looking inwards, but to look outwards to Jesus Christ. And Angfechtungen melts away when we realise that we can't add anything to Jesus Christ. And that, that is astonishingly good news. And if we're going to think rightly about Christ alone, then Colossians is a pretty good book, a pretty good place to go. Colossians is written um, about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Supremacy and sufficiency. Um, I think Dick Lucas was the one who coined um, that little phrase to describe the Jesus Christ of Colossians. Paul was writing probably to new Christians in Colossae to, to stop them wandering away from Christ alone as their source of hope in all things. He knew how easy it is to get distracted and to think things have to be added to Jesus. One of the things we see time and again in scripture that is it's human nature to try and make more work for ourselves. And in one sense, you can understand why, why we feel like we'd need to add, because it sounds too good to be true. Jesus and him alone, not me, Jesus is all I need for everlasting joy with God. And and that just seems too scandalous. That just seems too easy, maybe. Of course, I've got to add religious rules or, or supernatural visions and really kind of ecstatic experience in order to make sure that, that actually I'm, I'm really right with God and, and really living my best life now. Well, whatever it is you think that you need, Paul says, stop it. You don't need it. You just need Christ as he is given in the gospel. And so I just want to think about a few points in the book that get us thinking rightly about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So we'll start in verse 15 of chapter one. And so verses 15 to 17, Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient as the source of all things. Now, this is part of a a longer prayer in one sense, or certainly a longer passage that began in about verse nine, where Paul is saying that he's been praying for the Colossians, that they'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding so they might live a life worthy of the Lord, so that they might live a life that bears fruit, so they might live a life in which they're giving thanks to God the Father who has brought them from death to life, from darkness to life, death to light, from darkness to life. And that they they need to know this about Jesus Christ in order to make sure that actually this is the right decision that they've made. Bearing in mind, Paul's writing this probably um, maybe in, in three decades or so after Jesus was crucified, sort of mid to late first century. And so some pretty massive claims are being made here. You looked at the church then, it really did not look like this ever this this body of people that is part of God's everlasting um, purposes. And yet it was. And Paul gives the reason why in these few verses here. And I've heard other people say this, and I, I always feel this way when I come to the, come to this passage in particular, um, just how. Uh, how beyond me um, this is, how, how, uh, how on earth can I do justice to the elevated statement about Jesus that we find in these few verses here in Colossians? But let's give it a go. Um, 
So Paul has been giving thanks for the Colossians' faith. And the world has been turned upside down. And the reason why is that Jesus Christ is the source of all created things. Because the one that we're dealing with here is none other than the creator God himself living as a man. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he's the image of the invisible God. Now, this this kind of has has almost a, a, a double meaning here. In one sense, you've got the idea that as God from God, as God, the eternal son, um, he is he is from God in, in the Nicene Creed that we often say at communion that he is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, meaning that in the eternal life of God, the father, the son and the spirit, the son is eternally from the father. You may have heard the old fashioned word begotten. He is the only begotten son because he his birth, as it were, from the father has no beginning. It has no end. It's part of the eternal life of God. He is this one. And, and often image language kind of conveys that sense. But also in a John one verse 18 kind of sense that Jesus, when he took on flesh, when the son became a man and dwelt among us, he made the invisible God visible. Because what we see when we see Jesus is a man, yet the one whom we see is none other than the eternal God. So he makes the pre-existent eternal God seen in creation because he is supreme over all creation. So the firstborn doesn't mean he was a creature, that he had a beginning, but rather that he is supreme over the whole universe. Because look at verse 16, it can't mean that he is created because verse 16 says by him all things were created. He is not in the all things that were created. Therefore, he himself is not created. He is supreme over the whole universe. And actually, if you look at just these first few verses, can you see a word that is repeated rather a lot of times in these verses? It's just a small collection of letters, but an enormous word that covers literally everything. It's the word all. It's absolute and comprehensive. Jesus is the person who created all things. He is the purpose why all things were created. It's impossible to find a time when he was not because he is before all things in verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. He is not only the power who holds all things together, that is, he is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. It says in Hebrews 1. But also he is the purpose that holds all things together. That is, he is the reason why all things are holding together. As Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 10, God's plan is to bring all things together under the headship of Christ, his eternal plan. And so therefore, this one, this Jesus, is the one to whom every atom, past, present and future, owes its existence as their source, that is the, the thing that creates them and sustains them in being, and also the reason for their being. Can you see what a massive statement that is? This crucified criminal in Nazareth, from Nazareth, who was crucified in Jerusalem in AD 33, had Tom mentioned this morning just how anti-historical it is to think that this Jesus Christ never existed. The... Uh, only someone who refuses to read a book could make such a statement. This one who was crucified outside Jerusalem around about AD 33, Paul is claiming, 
the word of God is claiming he is none other than the source of all things. He is the one who sustains everything in being. He is the one who gives purpose for everything's existence. We're not dealing with a mere prophet or an inspiring leader. That crucified criminal is God almighty. So he is supreme and sufficient as the source. That is the one whom we are dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus Christ. And perhaps when we think or we forget just that in him and in him alone there is all our hope, or we live in a way, um, or perhaps our faith wavers and does not cling to this, we have forgotten just who it is we're dealing with. We're dealing with the one who is supreme and sufficient as the source of all things. But then verses 18 to 20, he is supreme and sufficient as the saviour. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. From creation, then, in those first few verses to verse 18, recreation, new creation. Christ is the head of the church. People who have a resurrected eternity ahead of them in the redeemed cosmos where everything has been made new. That's kind of what verse 20 is getting at, that this disrupted, fallen, fragile, broken world has been brought back into harmonious relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Because, as we're going to find out, Jesus's death on the cross reconciles humanity to God. And in fact, we are um, created to be the head of creation and bring all creation under God. Notice here as well, just the significance of the church. Verses 15, 16, 17, you're saying this Jesus Christ, he is cosmic. He is the one who who brought about all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the reason why things are created. In him, all things that are created carry on having being. We've got something cosmic, universal in scope when we look at Jesus. And then in verse 18, the the lens kind of narrows from universe wide to well, what at the time was a tiny, tiny band of people, the church. And that's just extraordinary, this tiny band of people. I mean, we, we kind of think of, I don't know, the, the Vatican maybe or St. Paul's in our mind and think the church is a really big deal. And yet, look at look at us here, just this small handful of people gathering over Zoom. And, and that's happening in little pockets all over the place. But even even smaller than that back then, just churches meeting in a few houses and a few scattered parts around the Mediterranean. These people are part of this cosmic wide scope of salvation. The one who is the head of the whole cosmos is the head of the church. The church really, really matters. What a big deal then this Jesus is and what he means. And as I said, um, verses 19 and 20, the idea that all things are reconciled to God isn't a, a statement that um, everybody is going to be saved. Um, only those who trust in Jesus enjoy that salvation. Now, Paul is speaking about a whole universe at odds with its creator. And in dying and in rising, Jesus imposed peace. It, it, Paul says something similar in Romans 8. He talks about creation groaning because creation, when humanity fell and God cursed humanity, he, the curse kind of landed on the whole world and the whole of creation languishes under that curse. And yet in Jesus's reconciling work, 
that is started to be undone. Harmony has begun to be reintroduced into a world that has been um, in complete chaos um, up until then. And again, why? Because the one who died on the cross, verse 19, is none other than God himself in the flesh. So Jesus is supreme and sufficient as the source. He is supreme and sufficient as the saviour. And then you kind of, if if you were to just pause there and say, um, that that could be enough for us, even just that to go on with. This is why Solus Christus, Christ alone, is such a big theme. What on earth do we think we could add to that? Why on earth would we want to add to that? Well, just to wrap things up, let's um, jump over to chapter two and um, in verse nine. And, and the final point, Jesus is supreme and sufficient as the substitute. Verse nine, you've you've got this sort of double fullness or verses nine and ten. You've got this double fullness going on for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So you've got in Christ the fullness of the Godhead, perhaps might be a better way of putting it, the fullness of all that it is to be God dwells bodily in this one. That's not to say that that um, sort of everything in God shrinks down and gets compressed and squashed into this human being. What it means is that when you look at this human being, there is no particle of him that is not um, identified with one who is God. Jesus is God, the eternal son. The fullness of Godhead is here in him. He is fully, truly man and yet also fully God. And also, verse 10, we have fullness in him. So the fullness of God um, dwells in this one. And yet because we also dwell in this one, we sort of share in the fullness that he is. We don't um, change into uh, the divine, but we, we kind of have a share, as it were, in the divine life. We are brought into that eternal relationship that Father, Son share by the Spirit. We are brought in to share in his life. And so then we have fullness. There is nothing else in this whole created universe that can offer us what we are offered in Jesus Christ. But also in him, we have fullness. That is, we have nowhere left to go once we have found him. There is nothing to be added to this. Why would you look anywhere else apart from the one in whom the fullness of Godhead dwells? Why would you look anywhere else apart from the one in whom we have fullness of life in order to find life? Anything else would be rubbish, absolute rubbish in comparison. That's why perhaps Paul in Philippians 3 um, uh, verses um, 7 and 8 talks about the fact that anything that he had to his account, anything that he could bring, his own attempts at righteousness, his own religious performance, he says they're dung, literally human excrement compared with Christ. Only in him is there going to be life. And he's saying the same thing here, um, just with different words. In him, we have fullness implicitly. So don't look anywhere else. And it's just interesting that he says um, he he is the head over every power and authority. We, we saw um, I, I didn't pause on it, but in verse 16 of chapter one, all things were created um, by this Jesus, by things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
and and here in chapter 2, verse 10, he is the head over every power and authority. Just in case you didn't get it earlier, in this one, we have the one who is head over every power and over every authority. There is there is no parliament. There is no um, Congress. There is no republic that um, has any claim um, higher than this one. He is the head over it all. And if he is the one in whom you have put your hope, then there is no earthly or heavenly power that can stand against you ultimately because you are in him. Well, how then is it that we get to enjoy this? How is it that we get to enjoy the one who is the firstborn from the dead? And so everything that he has in himself as God, the eternal son, in the one who is the risen and resurrected savior, how do we get the benefits of that? All that he has done for us, what what do we have to do? Well, we have to be brought to be in him. We have to be united to Jesus Christ in order to receive all that he has done. That work is done by the Spirit through our faith when we are united. And what happens when that happens? Well, Paul goes on in verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, or perhaps with the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So you see, we kind of get the benefit, as it were, because because of our faith in Jesus Christ and because God unites us by our faith to Jesus, all that he went through, we are treated as having gone through. And in one sense, we, we did go through it because we are united to Christ. So his perfect life lived in our place. He perfectly obeyed the law. He never sinned. Um, he was completely perfect in every way. He fully obeyed God. He could be declared righteous. Well, because of that, and therefore because we are united to him, his righteousness is counted as ours. Paul here is focusing particularly on that cutting off, that language of circumcision, that cutting off, that 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 that's, that rite of the Old Testament that, that showed judgment, it showed death and cleanliness as well. Jesus went through that judgment, through that death in our place. He, he was cut off from the land of the living. And because he was cut off in that way, so we experience that in a sense. We are treated as though we have gone through that, not through a system of our own efforts, not through our own hands. It's not done by human hands, but by being united with Christ. And then we have baptism as the, the sort of new sign of that. As we are, as our baptism symbolizes, we are united with Christ in his death. And in his resurrection, when he died, we died. When he rose, we are treated as having risen. And that is what baptism symbolizes, that dying and that rising again. And it's just interesting um, there that uh, uh, this is completely irrelevant to the sermon, but, well, it's kind of part of the passage, but circumcision as the sign of that judgment, that death, that cleansing was applied to the children to the babies of um, the covenant community in the Old Testament. Here, Paul is is sort of bringing in baptism 
as a not replacement is the wrong word, but as as it were, the fulfillment of that, that dying and that rising, that sign of what is going on when Jesus died on the cross is seen in baptism. It was it was pictured in circumcision. It is seen in baptism. This is why um, many branches of the Christian church think that therefore children of believers should be baptized. I can just say that because I'm here on the computer and I'm saying it into my little camera. But, um, you know, feel free to come come back at that one afterwards. But I'm just going to sort of drop it there and move on. Not just dying with Christ, but being raised with Christ, Paul says. Having been buried with him in baptism, here the the baptism is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, symbolized in, in what we do in baptism, being buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And then just to kind of reiterate the point, Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, when you were when you were dead, yes, you died with Christ, but even so spiritually you were dead because of your sins. God made you alive with Christ. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? A beautiful statement. God made you alive with Christ. When Christ rose from the dead, that power that raised him from the dead raised you, raised me. When we believed in Jesus, it was because God was raising us with the power that he used to raise Christ from the dead and united us with him. He made us alive. And what does that mean then? Well, we kind of go on now, this new spirituality that we are in, having been raised with Christ, it is to have our sins forgiven. And how are our sins forgiven? Verse 14, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing triumphing over them by the cross. He cancelled the written code with its regulations. Again, it's a, a sort of similar to that picture in Philippians 3, the idea that, that we might well by our own efforts and works try and earn God's blessing and his salvation. For Paul, it was his religious observance and moral effort. But actually in his sin, none of his deeds were good. On the balance sheets, they actually represented a list of debts. They were a loss. And here he, he's using perhaps more of a, a criminal metaphor, perhaps. The, the kind of language he's using is one of commandment. It's one of regulation. It's certainly one of law, it seems. There is a written indictment against Paul, against us, against all of humanity. When humanity fell at the beginning, that, that written indictment has stood. And personally, it stands against all of us with a list of failures to keep God's law. If you think a, a dodgy politician's tax return is something that they never want publishing, that's nothing compared with this shameful certificate that would be ours but for Christ. And so since God's law demands we, that we die for our sins, this notice, this this written code, um, perhaps is the indictment and execution notice all in one. It's a dangerous piece of paper. And yet all that it records against us, all that it says, all that it lists, if we trust in Christ, is no longer publicly available. In fact, it's not available anywhere. Not even Google could find it. Because it was nailed to the cross, Paul says. It was nailed to Christ's hands and his feet. Our sin pinned him up on the cross and the justice it deserved was comprehensively 
served. And as, as Paul mentions elsewhere, we get another piece of paper, this time the perfect record of Christ's perfect life, a certificate of righteousness with our name at the top. We do nothing. We add nothing to it. The only thing we can add is our sin. We receive it by believing in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, through this, having done this, the powers and authorities, spiritual powers and authorities, perhaps the devil in focus here particularly, were disarmed. They were stripped bare of their authority. They were ridiculed. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, particularly the death, as divine justice was satisfied in our place, suddenly all that the devil does as the accuser of the brethren, as the one who points out our failures and sin, is no longer available to him. That's not a tool he has in his toolkit anymore. And it was the only one he had, because all of our sin has been taken away. And all that those rulers and authorities could hold against us has been demolished. Jesus Christ stands over them. They they lie wasted on the floor, as indeed he leaves death there too. This is what John Calvin says on this verse. For although in the cross there is nothing but curse, it was nevertheless swallowed up by the power of God in such a way that it has put on, as it were, a new nature. For there is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated, as is the gibbet on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, the prince of death, nay more, has utterly trodden them under his feet. Christ's work is completely done. That's why on the cross he cried out, it is finished. It is all done. There is nothing to add to make us right with God. Colossians 2.14 does not leave any room for leftovers. And so as Christians, we can look at Calvary. We can look at the cross and say, nothing is left to pay. It has all been paid in full. So to finish off, what are the implications of this? Just a few things on the list. And perhaps the, the first one most important most important maybe for our time is um is the assurance of our salvation and our right standing with god as i said colossians two fifteen says jesus has destroyed not only the penalty of our sin but the power of evil in our lives yes we should be seeing progress in our holiness pro- um, progress in our living but our standing with God does not depend on seeing this triumph and seeing a, a greater sense of sin defeated personally for us. We, we want to be seeing that, but our standing with God doesn't depend on it. We obey God as a result of our salvation. and I'll come on to that, but not to obtain it. Why am I saying this? Because we can be sure of salvation. We can be sure that we are right with God, not by looking first at the strength of our faith, nor our good deeds, but by looking at Christ alone. We are right with God entirely because of his performance, not ours. God justified us with his eyes open. He knew exactly what our failings were. He justifies us and makes us right with himself because of Christ alone. And if we're trusting in Jesus, then we know we belong to God. 
So if you're feeling the weight of your sins or the shame of your failings and you're desperate to know that, that God might love you again, don't look to yourself, but look to Christ and know that he is enough. At this time particularly, and perhaps you've heard people mention it a lot, but it doesn't make it any less true. We, we are facing the reality of our death more and more. I don't know if you, um, who, who, if you were there on the, the weekend away um, a year and a half ago when Andrew Latimer came to speak. We were looking at Ecclesiastes. And he mentions um, on that weekend away this ancient medieval Christian practice of memento mori. Does anyone remember that? Anyone who's there remember that memento mori? Remember your death. It's it's a, an old practice that in lots of Christians used to keep a skull on their desk to remind them you are going to die. And the thing is, that sounds really morbid now, doesn't it? It sounds like, wow, either you're some kind of goth kind of person who likes talking about these things, or you're just really grim and depressing and no one wants to have anything to do with you. But that's because we live in a society that is so sanitized death that we don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. But in the words of that famous philosopher, Walter White from Breaking Bad, every life comes with a death sentence. Every life comes with a death sentence. Unless, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ returns before we die. But we will all face our own death. In Psalm 90, it's uh, a prayer to God, prayer of Moses, in fact, and looking at God's eternity, the fact that God does not experience time, that God is eternal. He is he is just who he is, quite outside time altogether. And then the comparison with us, we're fleeting, we're transient. And verse 12 of Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may have wisdom. And so actually the wise have always known to to count our days and to beware of the fact that, as it says in the psalm, you know, basically if we do well, we live for 70 years, maybe 80 if we do especially well. And yet the reality is death awaits us all. And um, now we know that more than ever. So I want to really kind of bring this to you to say, do you know why it is that you are right with God? When we do end up in that place where where we're fairly certain perhaps the end is far closer than we thought it would be, or we are at that stage in our life many years in the future where we are lying there knowing this is the time when I'm going to meet my maker, is our hope in Christ alone? Because if it is, we know we can face death without fear of what comes next. Because Jesus Christ has destroyed death and destroyed the judgment that is inherent in death. He has defeated the curse by taking it upon himself and he has risen again. And in him we are alive and will be forevermore. Do we know that as we think about our own mortality? The written code that was against us has been taken away. It has been nailed to the cross there's a one of my favorite hymns when peace like a river has this in the third verse my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole has been nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul christ alone he is enough secondly um your experience of God, maybe you're thinking, oh, I need to work harder to enjoy this experience of God. What more do I need to have going on in my life? Well, you have it already. 
Jesus Christ and him alone is what you need to enjoy the Christian life. The gospel is not the start of the Christian life. It is the way we carry on. And yes, you know, Paul is hot on the church doing all these things together through the word preached, through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we see others being baptized, as we take the Lord's Supper, God strengthens our faith. These all things are very true. But the basis on which we grow in our experience of God is Christ and him alone. That is how we grow. Um, so, for instance, in in prayer, Paul, in chapter four of Colossians, talks about praying, devote yourselves to prayer. You don't need to be super special to do it. You just need to know Jesus and then devote yourself to prayer. That's all you need. Um, there's no higher tier of Christianity. You've got Christ alone. You've got all you need. Going out and speaking about Jesus, the rest of um, that little section in chapter four, pray for us, Paul says, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And he goes on about making sure your speech is seasoned with salt, being wise in the way you speak to outsiders. Christ alone is the only hope for a dying world, for a world facing death and crumbling. Are we making the most of the opportunities we have, perhaps especially in this time, as we speak to people about the gospel? I'm aware with um, family that aren't Christians, as I speak to them on the phone, I'm always thinking, am am I going to take this opportunity to say, do you know what, we're all going to have to face our maker one day. Perhaps it's sooner now than we thought it might be. Are you ready? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And then finally, um, knowing who we are in Christ, where we are, we should live like it. And I'll just um, finish um, reading uh, this little section. This is the start of chapter three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden. You can't see now what your life ultimately will be. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Let his life unfold in yours as you remember who you are in him. And that in Christ alone, we have all we need. And because we have him, we have everything. I think I'll I'll finish there um, for now. Let me just let me just pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray you would help us to mean what we say when we say or even sing in Christ alone. My hope is found. Please help us to know that this is true and to have confidence and assurance, even in the face of death, in the face of whatever is coming our way. May we know truly that Jesus Christ is all we need because he is supreme and sufficient in all things. Thank you so much for making us alive together with him. And I pray that we would live like we believe it. In his name we pray. Amen.